Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. That we started last week uh, and uh, on uh, the first couple, well, chapters two and three in the book of Revelation, uh, which are letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And um, there's some, there's some hard-hitting stuff, and we're going to uh, jump into that afresh today. But I actually think that there's some words in these letters that are not just for the seven churches. These, this, these letters were to be written uh, uh, and to be read, sorry, aloud to all the churches. It was a circular letter. Uh, the book of Revelation is the letter of Revelation written by the Apostle John. It was to be read aloud to all the churches and I think read aloud to us today. One of the things that we're wanting to do uh, as a church is to actually write some letters write some letters to some of the other campuses. So we're one church in five locations, uh, all on the south side of Brisbane, apart from us, we're on the north side, aren't we? And, um, and uh, so uh, in, we've got some life group books at the back and uh, there's just some prompt questions and what we'd love to do in the coming weeks is actually read out some letters from other people from other churches writing encouragement to us. Isn't that cool? So if, if you would like to write a letter and send an email, it's at the email address is in those booklets, they're just at the back welcome desk. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head right now, uh, what that email address is, but it guides you through it. You grab the booklet and I write a letter to Ormo or to Logan or to Redlands or to Mackenzie and encourage uh, them. We did that uh, at our prayer and worship night on Thursday night and uh, so we're firing them off as a, as, a, as a city campus to encourage the other churches. So maybe you want to participate in that. You know, one of the things about reading the book of Revelations is it actually tells us that we'll be blessed. In our verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, it says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, which means me, because I'm about to read it to you. <laughs> so I'm, I am blessed. I am a blessed person, but it doesn't stop there. There is more people. Let's keep reading. And blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So hear the words this morning and take it to heart. Put it into action because it's powerful and we need to hear it because the time is near. So we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12. It's the letter to the church in Pergamum today. So if you've got your Bibles or your digital device, feel free to open it up. The words are going to be on the screen behind me as well. Let's read this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
I don't know if you've ever had that experience of feeling like you're being followed. Horrible feeling, like maybe someone is watching you or following you. Every year, we go as a family down to the mid-north coast of New South Wales for uh, a holiday with our family over Christmas. And uh, there, is on the, there is a beach that we go to close by that has two headlands and about three kilometres of beach in between. And so I love to, uh, most afternoons, and some of my brothers and sisters and family members also love to go for a run in the late afternoon to go down to this beach and to run up and down the beach. This year, I was going for a run and I was um, behind who I thought was my sister, Jenny. And you get to the headland and then you turn around and then you come back. And I saw who I thought was Jenny coming back. She looked very much like Jenny in the, in the, in the opposite direction. She'd done the turn and I was coming towards her. And so I thought being her big brother, just to tease her a little bit, I came up to her as she was coming past along the beach and said, I'm coming to get you. And then as she passed, I realised it was not Jenny. (laughs) I had no idea who it was, but she took off. I I didn't catch her. I I was catching her, but I didn't catch her. And she just went straight up the beach, straight into the exit. And I've got to tell you, it's a small beach. I didn't see her again that whole holiday. (laughs) It was terrible. When you read this letter, when you read this letter, the things I do. I'm stupid. Jesus says, as he opens this letter to the church, he says, I know where you live. You know, that phrase taken ages ago from the King James Version has actually been turned into a phrase that you would hear and read and see of in a horror film. I know where you live. In fact, I looked up the phrase, what it means now in our culture today. If an individual wants to to do bodily harm to another, he knows where to find the subject of the threat. That is what I know where you live means. That is not what Jesus meant. When he wrote to the church in uh, Pergamum, I know where you live. I know where you live because it's followed up with where Satan has his throne. Jesus is saying, guys, I know where you live. I know the challenges. I know the pressures. I know what is going on. I know that Satan is in your neighborhood. I know that Satan is threatening you. And Pergamon was. Pergamon was a place of power and pagan worship. You know, it was part of the Roman Empire. It was a significant city in Asia Minor as part of the Roman Empire. And we know that the Roman Empire ruled with power and with the sword. And Pergamon was one of the few cities that was given power by Rome to exercise capital punishment. One of the few cities that they were able to do that. It was a place of power and it was a place of pagan worship. Like Ephesus last week, emperor worship was demanded by its civilians. There was a giant temple in the middle of Pergamum that was dedicated to the worship of Caesar Augustus. This massive temple. And everyone was compelled, particularly if they wanted to get ahead in life, they were compelled to bow down and worship Caesar Augustus. Augustus. 
And it's into this place that Jesus says the words, I know where you live. I know your context and I'm telling you, I come with a completely different kind of power. I come with a completely different kind of sword. My sword is my word. And so the letter starts by saying, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. There is power in the words of Jesus. In fact, we can see this all through Scripture. Go right back to the beginning. God's Word spoke creation into being. It was the words of Jesus in the boat with the storm around and the disciples freaking out that Jesus stands up and speaks to the storm, speaks to creation and says, creation, peace, be still. And the disciples, as the storm subsides, they go, who is this? Even creation, even the wind and the waves obey his command. His weapon, his sword is his word. What God says, he does. There is no distinction between his word and his powerful action. And we see that in the New Testament as well. You read from Ephesians Chapter 6, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which we looked at last week, he, he says to them, he says, put on, put on the sword or take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is alive and active. It is not a stagnant piece of proposition statements. The Word of God is a person. He's alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus is king because his Word is powerful. Jesus is stronger. He is greater. He is more powerful because of his Word. And Jesus looks at the church in Pergamon. He wants to encourage them and say, I see what's going on. I understand that you're in a city where there is power and pagan worship. That there's an empire that rules by the sword. And I want to encourage you. In fact, I honour the fact that you have been faithful in the midst of suffering under the sword. You have been faithful to me even though you have suffered under the sword. And we get a little bit of a picture into what has happened historically in Pergamon because Jesus says, you did not renounce me, uh, you renounced your faith in me, even, not even in the days of Antipas. Who's Antipas? Well, Antipas was uh, one, of the, one of the significant leaders in the church in Pergamon who clearly, as we read here, was a faithful witness and was martyred in the city. For his faith. Despite that, the church remained faithful to Jesus. They were faithful. But as we read through many of these letters to the churches, there's a, there's a yet, or there's a but. Jesus says, you have been faithful, but you have abandoned the power of my word. You've been faithful, but some of you in the church have abandoned the power of your, my word. You have collapsed 
into the teachings of your surrounding culture. You have given into the strategy of Satan, who is in your city. You've, you've, you've given into the strategy of Satan. What's, what's Satan's strategy? Well, what does Satan say? We can go right back to the Garden of Eden. Satan asks a question. So he walks through the garden, he slides in as a serpent. Adam and Eve are living this, this, this life in pure relationship with one another and with God. And in comes Satan. And the first words he says are a question. Did God really say? Did God really say? Satan's strategy is to undermine God's word. That is what Satan does. Satan undermines and distorts, often using good ideas and semi-right doctrine, kind of takes God's words and misuses them, twists them. And we see that in this conversation that Adam and Eve have in this narrative. They have this conversation with Satan, who is the great deceiver, twists words and undermines God's word. So what is Satan doing? He's going, did God really say, in other words, can you trust God's word? Or to put it another way, is God really good? That is the strategy of Satan right back through history and he does it right up until this day. Undermines and asks the questions, is God really good? Are God's words really true? Is God to be trusted? And this is what has happened in Pergamum. They've begun to believe false words. They've begun to believe false teaching. And Jesus rebukes the church for abandoning his word and believing false teaching. Teaching that kind of sounds right, but is not quite. Teaching that adopts some of the values of the surrounding culture. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, this story of Balaam is an interesting one. Jesus is going right back to the book of Numbers where we encounter another talking animal. There's talking snakes and then there's this talking donkey. That is right. Shrek is not the first talking donkey in history. There's another donkey. Balaam is going to deliver uh, the word of God. Well, actually he's not. He's, he's, got, he's, a, he's a prophet and he's walking along the way. And I don't, you can take the donkey. I don't want you having that kind of image uh, of Balaam. Anyway, he's with his donkey. The donkey sees an angel of the Lord, but Balaam doesn't. The donkey starts arcing up, stops. You can read this in Numbers chapter 22. And then the donkey literally has a conversation with Balaam about the way in which Balaam is treating him. Why are you beating me? You're a horrible owner. It's quite funny. There's humour in there. The point is, is that God speaks to Balaam. Balaam abandons God's word and actually along with Balak misguides and misleads the people of Israel to take on the idols and the sexual immorality of the Moabites. And Jesus is saying, that is what you're doing. You are embracing the teaching and the culture of another nation, 
of another people group. You've abandoned my teaching. In other words, they have compromised themselves. And that is what had happened to the church in Pergamum. They had compromised themselves by embracing eating food for idols, sacrifice to idols, and immorality. They'd syncretized, to use a technical word. This is what theologian Richard Borkham says. He says, and this is now on the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitans were a Christian sect who embraced this same teaching. The Nicolaitans' teaching made it possible, Richard Borkham says, for Christians to be successful in pagan society. But this was the beast. Now, the beast is Satan, and it's another name used in Revelation. This was the beast's success, a real conquest of the saints, winning them to his side, rather than only apparent conquest he achieved by putting them to death. Satan got in by misleading and enabling Christians to embrace the culture. See, there's a lie that is sown into our hearts from Satan which opposes and counters the voice of God. And the lie we see here is firstly that we're not significant and we're not satisfied in God. We're not significant and we're not satisfied in God. Firstly, significant. See, food sacrificed to idols was actually served at civic events and guild dinners in Pergamum. So if you wanted to move your way up in society, if you wanted to have influence, if you wanted to be accepted, then you would go to these guild dinners where food sacrificed to idols would be served. So if you wanted to move up vocationally, if you wanted to move up socially, if you wanted to move up politically, then you should find yourself at one of these banquets one of these guild dinners. But in doing so, people were aligning themselves to idolatry. Secondly, satisfaction. Sexual immorality. They syncretized. They, they brought in the values of their surrounding culture, which was promiscuous, and we know this about Roman culture. And Jesus says, you have given yourself over to sexual immorality. Now, what does that mean? That's such a loaded word. And I realize that, that that's, a, that's a wham straight in, in, in your face, if you, particularly if you've stepped into church for the first time. That word, that word sexual immorality, the Greek word comes from the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And in the New Testament, this word porneia, sexual immorality, is actually used as a catch-all phrase. It's a word that, that, that gathers in a whole bunch of different sexual activities that sit outside God's design for sex. And God's design for sex is, and we see this throughout the Bible, is sex is designed for man and woman in the context of marriage. That might sound pretty strict, and it is, but Jesus gets even stricter. When you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 
Jesus says these words in the great Sermon on the Mount, one of the, one of the, the, the great speeches that, that history has ever known and people celebrate whether you're a person of faith or not. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't just talk about behaviour. Jesus talks about motivation, heart, thought. I think we all probably sit here and go, man, that, that challenges me. I probably need to, that's heavy. But there's something in the church in Pergamum that had embraced and said, this kind of behavior is not only okay, it's to be celebrated because that is where we find satisfaction. I actually think that this speaks to our context and our culture today. We are incredibly influenced by culture around us in ways that we cannot even understand or see. Jonathan Grant in his fantastic book, Divine Sex, says this, Our social and cultural context is not something we look at objectively, like a painting, but is more like an atmosphere that we exist within and cannot exist without. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, a fish does not feel wet. Likewise, we swim in the world rather than stand outside it as detached observers. We are involved in our surroundings in a complex and holistic way. And our context shapes every aspect of our lives, including how we see our sexuality, our relationships and ourselves. You know, we live in a time and a culture that works its way in. It is inevitable. And in the same way, culture says things over our lives about significance and satisfaction. You know, we live in a world that says you find your significance by living out your life, pursuing your values and your dreams the way in which you want You know, we make great sacrifices to succeed. We compromise to achieve. We believe that social standing and success is the key to fulfillment. And so we will sacrifice many things in order to get to a place of significance. In culture and in our hearts and lives, I know this for myself, because we believe the lie that I am only valuable and worthwhile unless I achieve, unless I find myself in social standing. And so we, make, we sacrifice our values. We sacrifice our morals. We sacrifice our relationships. We sacrifice our spiritual life in order to find significance. It's a cultural lie. And we are also told that in this culture that we find satisfaction, enjoyment and pleasure through sexual license. In fact, the narrative in our world today says we can only find meaning and purpose in sexual expression. If you're not physically sexually expressing yourself, then there is something wrong with you. The narrative is told from a very young age. And it's working its way into the church. It was interesting, just doing some research, uh, the Pew Research um, did some uh, analysis in America just recently. Now, I know that America is not Australia, but I think that there are correlations. Here's what they found. 50% of Christians say sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. 
Just over a third of Christians in the US say it's sometimes or always acceptable for two consenting adults to exchange sexually explicit images of themselves. And about one third, 35% of those who go to religious services at least monthly say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. That is the world that we live in, and it is the values of the world and culture are working their way into the church. Now, I realise as I'm saying this, there are a whole bunch of uh, idols that I'm pushing against and worldviews that that perhaps are new for some of you here. But I want to say this, that actually God's values, God's truth for flourishing and growth, I'm going to get to it in a moment, sits in great distinction with what the world tells us. And remember, we live in a culture that we can't see. And so we believe what we're told verbatim. It works its way into every part of who we are. And I watch it with our younger generations. David Kinnaman says, screens disciple. Emerging generations are getting their vision, their values and their morals from their screens from what they see on their screens. Parents, we've got to be aware of this. We've got to be across this. So what's the lie that sits underneath that? That we are not significant and that we don't find satisfaction in God alone. But this is where Jesus steps in. Where Jesus says, I am king. That Jesus says, actually, I am the way, the truth, and life. That I actually do have something better. As he writes to the church in Pergamum, he says, Guys, you've abandoned a lower, lesser truth that will lead to destruction. I have got a better way. And ultimately, I will win. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I don't just say that as a carte blanche statement. I know that has massive impact. But here's the wonderful thing about truth in Jesus. It's a relationship. It's a person, it's living and it's active. It's not just a set of propositional truths. That was the problem of Ephesus last week. They knew everything. They, they had it all right, they had it all down pat, they knew all, and they did not have love. And Jesus says, you have lost your love. You may know everything, you may tick all the boxes, you may be religious, you may be moral, but if you've lost your love, it goes either way. And Jesus says, I invite you into a relationship. And where there is relationship, there is love. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I invite you into a living relationship with me where I will walk alongside you. I will love you and I will set you free. Jesus says, he says to the church in Pergamum and he says to us, the truth will set you free. I am the truth. And the truth will set you free. It's John 8, 32. Have you got that slide, Ash? And verse 17 says this, the truth will set you free. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I love this verse. I love this verse. Can we get that verse up there, Ash? Verse 17. I want to sit in this for a bit. Because as we grapple with these lies, as the church has fallen for the lies of Satan, which is I'm not significant, 
I don't find my significance in Christ. I don't find my satisfaction in Christ. No, no, not John 8, just sorry. Uh, In verse 17 of Revelation chapter 2. This verse answers these lies. See, firstly, Jesus gives true significance. He says, I give you a white stone with a name on it. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? I'm going to give you a piece of rock with a name on it. I mean, I'd be sitting there going, thanks, that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, what do I do with this? You need to understand the context. See, stones were often used as tickets to get into banquets, into events. Pebbles and stones, I know it sounds weird, but they're often what they were used. You know what Jesus is saying? You don't need to go to these guild dinners to eat food sacrificed to idols to find your significance. In fact, I'm giving you a white stone that gets you into the great banquet where you get to come and you, 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 you spend time with me, the victorious king. You're invited into the greatest table. You're invited into the greatest banquet of all time. This is your ticket. You can find great significance in me. Here it is. In fact, it's a white stone. White meant pure. This is the truth that Jesus says over every one of us. And maybe you're sitting here right now and you're going, oh my goodness, as I hear the words of Jesus, I've blown it in some way. Oh my goodness, I have stuffed up. Oh my goodness, I am not that perfect person. I've done this, that and the other. And right now you're cycling through your head. You need to hear the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I will give you a white stone. You can come into the banquet and the party. You are significant and you are significant and you are pure and you're clean because I have died for you. You are pure. You are clean. You're forgiven. You're invited into a relationship with me, not because of what you've done, not because of your past, but because who I am and because I love you. I love you so much that I'm actually going to rewrite your name. I'm going to give you a new name. Those names of the past that you carry around, failure, sin, guilt, shame, rejection, whatever they are that sit deep in your heart, wipe them away. I'm giving you a new name. You are my son and my daughter. You are invited into my family. You're invited around my table. You have significance. People, that changes everything. We don't need to walk around this city. We don't need to walk with our friends or our family members feeling like we have to earn. We have to look the part. We have to be at work that extra bit. It's about motive significance. Don't believe the lie that says you are the sum amount of what you achieve. It's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus says, you don't need to go to those guild meetings and eat food sacrifices to idols because I've got something far better than that. And I will secondly satisfy all your needs. It's this random thing that he says about manna. Did you pick that up in verse 17? I will give you some of the manna. To to the one who's victorious, I will give you some of the manna. What is that hidden manna? Well, there was manna. 
that was put into the Ark of the Covenant to remind the people. It was as a kind of a statement that kind of stayed there, kept going, it didn't die. Like because manna kind of fizzled out, you know, like yeah, one day you had to eat it and then it went got mouldy. There was this hidden manna that was put aside to remind the people of God's love and a way in which he met their deepest needs every day. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is saying, I can meet your deepest needs. I can satisfy your deepest needs. The world says that you need all of these things to be satisfied. There's a narrative over, 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 over our culture, as there was in Pergamon, that says you, can, you have to experience all these things. You need to be go and express yourself sexually because that's how it is to get satisfaction. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, there's a deeper, far better truth. You follow my way, you follow my truth, you will find meaning and satisfaction. You walk in my ways and you will find a depth of meaning. And that does mean for sexuality, God created sex. Just want, want to put it out there. God created sex. He actually understands our bodies, our psychology and our needs better than we do. And scientists are finding out more and more about the power of connected monogamous Relation sex and the way in which God moves us together in the way that He has shaped us and formed us to be. God understands us, He knows us, He doesn't want to rip us off, He doesn't want to pull things away from us, He actually knows us, He wants us to flourish, He knows our deepest needs, and He is the one who truly satisfies. That is His truth. Jesus gives us true significance. Jesus satisfies our deepest needs. And finally, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. See, this is the whole point. There's a battle going on. Let's bring it right back to the start. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. There is a conflict, there is a war, there are swords that are being flayed. And Satan is using the empire to, to, to pressure down and push down on Christians. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a sharper sword. It's my word. It will set you free. It'll bring freedom and life. And one day that sword will return. I want to, I want to finish with this great picture at the end of Revelation. It's the picture of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we read this word onwards. I saw, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With just he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. Coming out of his mouth, get this, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a tattoo. Jesus has a tattoo as he comes riding down on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth saying, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus wins. He wins. That's worth celebrating, people. I reckon we can just give just a little bit of a clap for that, a little bit of hope. I don't wanna wind you up too much, but that is our future. See, so often we live in our world and we feel like we're defeated. The lies of the enemy have sunk deep in our heart and we need to remind ourselves of who we are. As one, someone uh, once said, 
when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Jesus wins. The Word of God wins. We have that hope. We can live with that knowing that the truth is that He is for us. He is for you. He is for you. Right now, He loves you. He is for you. He has died for you. We read in that, that, that picture in Revelation, His cloak is dipped in blood. He's died for us and that sets us free, gives us great hope. So how do we respond? Well, Jesus says, in His letter to Pergamum, He says this, repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, repent. He says, repent. What does repent mean? Well, repent literally is a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behaviour. See, the reason this is, belief and truth is so important is because belief informs our behaviour. You want to know what you believe? Look at your behaviour. You might say that, yeah, I believe God loves me, but look at your behaviour. You might say, oh yeah, I, I believe that God is the only way, the truth. But look at your behaviour. See, belief is really important. Repentance is a changing of the mind that leads to a changing of behaviour. It literally is a turning around. 180 degree. Repentance is saying, I'm turning around. I'm coming back. I'm walking back. Jesus writes to the church in Pergamum and I think He writes to, well, I know He writes to us today. He writes to me today. Let's bring this personally. He says, Andrew, repent. See, being a Christian is not just about repenting once and then getting to heaven. We may have been told that at Sunday school or in other churches, it's not true. Jesus says, repent and believe. There's two sides of the same coin. And to be a believer is to continue that journey as we move towards His love. It's, it's, it's a response of grace saying, I can't do this. I can't keep walking like this. I can't, I can't be religious enough or moral enough or tick all the boxes. I can't. God, I turn to you, I repent. And I hand over and I believe afresh and you know, say, God, forgive me. I hand, I hand my life over to you again. I can't do this. Forgive me for believing the lies that I find, I find my significance in what I do or I find satisfaction in pursuing my own fleshly desires. God, it just, it ruins me. I repent. I come back to you. That is the invitation that God has for every one of us. So repent. Repent. I realise that this is not a popular message in our culture today. I realise that even preaching this message is just, it walks over a whole bunch of presuppositions, but I know that it's important and Jesus invites us all back to the truth. Here's what I'd love us to do, if you're willing to do it. As an act of repentance, if you feel like you're in that place, you think, God, I've begun to believe some of those lies of the enemy around significance and satisfaction. Forgive me, I repent. Here's what I'd love you to do. I'd love to pray for you in a moment and pray another prayer or some more words that John actually speaks. But I invite you to do something. I invite you just to get on your knees, just where you sit. Say, that's me. Again, I just come and I repent and say, God, I, I need you. I've believed the lies and I need you. 
I repent. And just in quiet, in this posture, surrender afresh to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. If that's you right now, I invite you to join me on your knees in repentance. Let's do that now if you're willing to do that. No pressure, no compulsion. Don't do this out of obligation. Just with the team playing behind, if that's you, let's just take a few moments right now. Just bring before God those things perhaps that have just triggered for you in your heart. lift them before the Lord, the God of love and grace, the God of truth. And in your mind's eye, just allow Him to lift your pain, your brokenness, your shame, those old names, those old names. And in your mind's eye, receive that new name afresh. Shine your revelation, shine your grace, shine your kindness. Receive these words from John as he writes in 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. By claiming you have sin, you are in alignment with truth. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the truth. Let me pray over you this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here And for those, Lord God, who have come before you in confession and repentance as we bow the knee, Lord God, I pray that we will know the forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that the truth sets us free. And I pray for freedom in this place today. God, pour out your freedom in hearts, minds and lives today. God, where there is habits and besetting sin, where there are things, where there is a wrong behaviour, where there is wrong thinking. Holy Spirit, bring freedom. Break the chains, Lord God. Bring freedom. Break behaviours, Lord God. Bring freedom. Bring hope and truth. Bring joy and bring, bring satisfaction, Lord Jesus, in new ways today, I pray. Pour out Your grace in Jesus' mighty Name. Amen. Amen.
Hey, can we move from that posture of kneeling to standing? I'd love for us to land by declaring and worshipping. We, we, we come with confidence before a King in truth that we are forgiven. Holding our, holding our stones, holding our pebbles. Grab hold of them. Grab hold of your pebbles. You have a ticket into the banquet. And we can worship the God who has won, who has defeated sin and death. And I'd love for us, we we'll build this up, guys. I know it's a change from what we planned, but I think we just need to, uh, we need to worship, we need to sing, to see the one who is high and lifted up. We're going old school with an old song today. Shining in the light of His glory, pour out your power and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. Let's worship this. And as we do, as we do, as we sing, let's sing over our lives. Let's sing over our city and proclaim light and life to a culture and a city who desperately need to know the freedom of Jesus. Come on, let's sing these words together to see you high and lifted up. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.